Good morning again. Uh, if you're visiting, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. Last week we started a series in the book of Psalms called Storyteller, Stories Behind the Psalms. We're doing this in conjunction with our sister church in Austin, Mosaic. Today we're in Psalm 52. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word with me. Psalm 52. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You're, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, we do thank you for your word, for being the word that is the light to our feet. And we're asking you to add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. Your light shines in the darkest of places and times, and this story and this psalm represent perhaps one of the darkest and brightest. And so we're asking you, Holy Spirit, to illuminate your word in our hearts And we're inviting you to light up your truth in our lives. Amen. I want to take a minute and review why we're going through psalms like this uniquely. Uh, The psalms are, again, really intense and emotional and powerful and unique, poetic. And knowing the story behind the psalm helps us to get greater context and really tap into the power of the words that are emoted and expressed. I'll illustrate this in another way. Next month marks 65 years since the iconic I Have a Dream speech given by the the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. When I was in school growing up, I learned the words. I, I, I read from the textbook And I knew about the I Have a Dream speech. 
But my learning and my context for learning was very lacking in central Oregon, which demographers can demonstrate is the heart of Caucasia. And even when I came to know God, and my heart was supernaturally connected to the same God that fueled the dream of Martin Luther King Jr., even then I still lacked in the context of the story. But in recent years, my context and being in churches like this and having friends like I have now that I didn't then, my context for learning has grown a lot. And not just learning about the I have a dream speech, but about God himself. If we're all made in God's image, then seeing God's image redeemed through different people helps me to know God better. It helps me to be enriched by who he is and enriched in the story, not just in that particular speech, but who he is. So in light of that, I'm Way richer than I used to be, but nowhere near as rich as I'm being and getting every day. Amen? Now, as we study the psalm and we take a different approach to seeing the story behind it, I trust that we'll all continue to be enriched by what I trust that you can, in the days to come, bring your emotions to when you read God's word and you open up maybe to start with psalms, like I've been doing maybe the last 10 years when I read scriptures in the morning. Start with psalms. So here's a little backstory. The way I want to unpack Psalm 52 is I want to share with you just about 10 minutes or so the story behind Psalm 52. And then I'm going to point out three characters in that story. The prowler, the psalmist, and the priest. So I'll share the story behind Psalm 52, and then we'll develop these characters, the prowler, the psalmist, and the priest. Now, I want to remind you that even though I use a word like the story, and I reference things like characters, I want to remind you that this is not some sort of fictional account. Everyone pinch yourself. The people that we're reading about and the tragedy that really befell these people and the costly redemption that's associated and that was applied and paid for and that we're learning about today is every bit as real and more real than the very skin you're pinching. And so even though I use words like characters and story, I think you can understand what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Amen? Amen. Now, in last week's sermon, we covered much of David's story from bird's eye view that God chose him as a humbled man, a humble man and a humbled man, and chose to exalt the humble but cast down the haughty eyes, is what we, we learned from, uh, from Scripture last week. And how David took the throne, or God took the throne away from Saul, gave it to David. And God was in the process, even as David was on the run, of replacing the haughty man, Saul, and placing David on the throne and exalting David in the midst of his humility. We even saw that God continued to do that as a theme in his life. A little more backstory. The king that God was displacing, King Saul, his oldest son was Jonathan. Jonathan was the next in line to the throne. He could have seen himself as the next great one behind his father, but instead he saw greatness in a younger man that God saw greatness in. David was, pro- or Jonathan was probably like my age. 
kind of an older man. And, and David was likely like a young teenager. And yet Jonathan could see God's doing something in this guy. And even though I could claim rights to some sort of greatness, I'm deferring what I perceive to be greatness to what God is seeing in this young man. And Jonathan made a covenant with David. That did all the more to spur on the anger and jealousy of King Saul, who was pursuing after David. King Saul was trying to kill David, who was perhaps his most loyal servant. That's where we are in the story. That's where we find, in the middle of this story that we kind of outlined last week, we find this smaller story, and we, it's referenced in Psalm 52, the story about this prowler, Doeg. I'll read the introduction in Psalm 52. A mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. To tell you the story, I'm going to take you back to 1 Samuel. We kind of skipped over this a little bit last week. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 21 and 22 if you have your Bibles. Otherwise, we'll have some of this on the screen or you can listen. Verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 21. David, on the run for his life, says David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, stop there for a second. The city of Nob, for maybe just a generation or two, housed the house of God. And before David's son Solomon built the temple, the house of God was meeting in a kind of like a temporary tent. They called it the tabernacle. Everyone say tabernacle. tabernacle. That's an important word. Now, generations before this, the tabernacle resided in a city called Shiloh. That city was overtaken and destroyed by Philistines. And so the, the people of God always on the run and the priests of God kind of set up tent, if you will, with the house of God in this city called Nob. And David, when he's on the run, goes to Nob. And it says the high priest, Ahimelech, came to meet David trembling. And he said to him, Why are you alone? No one else is with you. See, Ahimelech knew that there's reason to, to be a little suspicious that David would come alone. And notice that though he was fearful and trembling, and though he had reason to be suspicious, I feel like Ahimelech was hearing a deeper voice of peace because he proceeds to help David anyway. The man takes a risk. David, though, says to Ahimelech, the priest, here's why I'm alone. Uh, you know, the king has uh, a special mission for me. And uh, no one's supposed to know about this. David is lying. Now, I could say that, like, he's just not quite being forthright. But David is just flat out not telling the whole truth. Ahimelech, the priest, discerns that something's off. David is not forthright with him. And David says, look, uh, when I left the king's, on the king's mission here, I, I kind of just left my stuff behind and I need some stuff to, to help me on the mission that the king sent me into. And so I need some things. He needed some physical help. 
He needed some food. He needed some tools. He needed some, some supplies to help him to defeat his enemies. He needed weapons. He had basic needs. Now, the truth is that he left and left all those things behind because the king himself was against him. Saul shouldn't have been against David, but he was against him and chased him out. And David left in a hurry with nothing. But he says to him, like, uh, actually, um, I'm, I'm going on a, a mission for the king. Do you have any bread? Ahimelech says, we don't have any common bread. But we have holy bread. And he says to David, I'll give you all that I have of the holy bread here. I love how David is giving, given something that technically breaks priestly rules but it's because God knows the need of his, his son that he loves. Despite his lying, despite his mess, God is providing the best of the best, the access to his very promise in his provision. He's giving him holy bread. I want you to think about this for a second and just apply this to yourself for a second. Now, I'm going to take a time out in the story. David's in trouble. And where does he go? He goes to church. Beloved, I pray that that would be our default too. And I don't, I don't know what devil in hell that I need to silence in Jesus' name to tell you that when you are a mess and when you're in a mess, I pray that your default would be, man, I'm such a mess, I'm going to church. Instead of the opposite, why is it that we allow the accuser to tell us, man, I'm a mess. I just yelled at my wife. I just, I, I'm just not right. I would be a hypocrite to go to church. No, bring your mess to our mess and see what God does with broken pieces. He makes beautiful things with broken pieces. Let's be a people that can say, instead of allowing the accuser to, to keep me far from God, let me allow this need and this mess attract itself where it should to the very need and the provision that's provided in the middle of my struggles. David is struggling. He goes to church. I pray that that would be our default, that it would make sense for you to say, okay, well, man, I don't know what to do. I've been, I've been not right, and therefore, I'm going to clear my calendar, and I'm going to growth group because I know we're going to pray and I'm going to be ridiculously honest with what I'm struggling with, with my brothers and sisters. Let that, in Jesus' name, be our default. David needed some things. He brings his mess to Ahimelech. Verses 1 through 6, Ahimelech gives him the very holy bread. And then David, in verse 8, says to Ahimelech, Do you have not a spear or a sword at hand? I... I brought neither a spear nor a sword or weapons with me because, uh, you know, the, the king's business required me to, you know, leave really quickly. The priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, it's here. David said, there's none like it. I'll take it. David goes and despite his lies and his struggles, gets equipped with bread and sword. Everyone say bread. bread. Everyone say sword. sword. 
he receives these important provisions from the priest at the very tabernacle of God. Now, this would be a great story, right? This, this story where, okay, the story is David had a need. He goes with his mess, and God provides for him even though he doesn't deserve it. He's not telling the truth, and God gives him bread and a sword anyway. That would be the whole of the story and something good to learn, and just we could stop there if it weren't for tucked in the middle of the bread and the sword is verse 7. I'll have it up on the screen for you. It says, Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day at the house of God in the tabernacle, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It says he was detained before the Lord. He was likely performing a vow for the Lord. And we're going to come back to that a little later and explain why that's both important and a little bit contradictory and ironic. In the middle of this story where David is going and seeing his need met in the very house of God, there's this strange verse 7. It's kind of an interlude. Tina Miranda from Mosaic Church in Austin says, this is the literary equivalent to a photobomb. You know, you know, photobomb, you're taking a picture and there's some creepy guy in the back kind of doing something funny. You didn't, it's like, man, it would have been such a great picture, but that guy ruined it. This is what that's like in this story of David's felt need brought to the house of God, met. In the middle of it, Doeg <laughs> appears. We don't learn about anything else about Doeg until the next chapter. Fast forward to chapter 22 of 1 Samuel. King Saul was out to get David. Now verse 6 says, Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree with a spear in his hand and all his servants standing around him. He was possessed with violent indignation. He would not let go of his spear. Paranoid, obsessed. Verse 7 And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? He's just throwing out promises like he's like the eternal vending machine of all these things. Verse 8, all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. He's saying, Jonathan and David became friends and they left me out. No one of you, it literally says, none of you is sorry for me or tells me when my son is stirred up with David against me to lie in wait for me. Now, no one was against Saul. Jonathan wasn't against Saul. No one was lying in wait and conspiring against Saul. Saul was just paranoid and thought that. And so he's gathering his men around him with a spear in his hands. Is he appealing to their honor? No, he's appealing to their pity. Why don't you feel sorry for me? He's appealing to their base greed. He's promising them fields and vineyards and things that he probably can't deliver on. But then check out verse 9. It says, Then... 
answered Doeg the Edomite. Hey, I, I saw David. He was in the house of God with Ahimelech. Ahimelech was, was praying for him and, and uh, giving him provisions. And it's interesting that it says, then Doeg the Edomite. Remember, Doeg was in the house of God, had a vow there. When he sees something that looks a little off, does he go right to King Saul to tell him? Does he say, I am here for King Saul's honor and I'm going to go and tell? No, it says once Saul started promising all these things, that sparked something in Doeg. Sparked his greed and he says, well, I saw David. Even the way he says it makes it seem like he's playing right into Saul's fears for his own gain. He knew that David was not there conspiring against, against Saul. He saw that David was just in need, and Ahimelech was helping him. Ahimelech was not sending him on some sort of mission against Saul for the Lord. But it says, remember Psalm 52, David says, you love, oh, you love lies. See, he, he presents this story to Saul in a way that was advantageous to him. To him. Verse 11, 1 Samuel 22, it just gets worse. It says, Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest and the son of, Ahit, the son of Ahitub in all his father's house. We know that this was almost a hundred men, priests. The priests were, who were at Nob and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen, priest. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me with David, giving him bread and a sword and praying for him and supporting him so that he could rise up against me? Himelech the priest says to Saul, basically, be careful who you think is against you. He is the most faithful of all your bodyguards and the most honored in all your house. Is there anyone more loyal to you, Saul? I've always prayed for this man. Nothing is different today. The king said, Today, Ahimelech, you shall surely die. He goes and he tells his servants, Saul says, kill him and kill all the priests. These servants looked at the king and said, no way. There's no way we're going to do that. You can kill me, but I am not going to stand before the living God after having performed and perpetrated this crime. No way. They refuse Saul to his face. So what does Saul do? Saul turns to Doeg, this prowler. He says, you kill them. Now, I think Doeg was probably looking for another opportunity. Look, I'm guessing Doeg wasn't just really wanting to kill a whole bunch of people. But I'm thinking Doeg looked back and said, you know, if I'm more intense with my bloodiness, maybe he'll give me even more. So he kills all the people in front of him. And that wasn't enough. They had to go into the city of Nob and kill every man, woman, and child. Chapter 22 ends with one of the sons of Ahimelech, Abiathar, 
surviving and reporting what happened to David. And David basically says, I knew, and this all happened because of me. That is the story. What do we do with a story like this? What do we do with so much bloodshed and so much tragedy and something that spins out of control? Do we think that we're different now, that when we're insecure and we're not right in our head, that it doesn't turn out to be destructive in other people's lives? Or can we relate to this in a way that connects with the redeemer of this story? Let me develop three characters for us. Number one, the prowler. Let's start where David started. In the opening verses, David, back to our psalm in 52, David describes this man. He says, oh, you boast in evil, you mighty man. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. You're a worker of deceit. You love all words that devour deceitful tongue. God will break you down. This should sound familiar to us. This story of this prowler should remind us of the ancient prowler. Be alert, 1 Peter 5 says, and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or in John 10, verse 10, it says this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Or John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his own native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. In order to make sense of the story with Doeg and David and this tragedy, we need to understand it in the context of the, the greater story where there is an enemy prowling against us and seeking our own destruction. This is not the enemy being creative in this story. He's doing what he always does, lying and destroying. The devil and his demons might not be everyone's, should not be everyone's favorite topic to study. But I'm here to warn you that to a certain degree, if you don't understand and consider how ultimately the devil prowls and looks in wait to lie to you and to bring destruction through those lies to your, your relationships and to your very life, I'm warning you that the worst of destruction is not considering that, not being alert. But it also says, be alert and sober-minded. You see, in this moment, David hears these words. He is devastated, but he's not surprised. He says in verse 22 of 1 Samuel 22, I knew on that day that Doeg was there and he would tell Saul. You see, he... He knew of the schemes of the devil and he understood and he wasn't surprised. And church, I pray that we could be a people that understands the devil to the degree that we're not surprised and that we can access the wisdom of God in a very dark and devastating moment and not be shocked 
but be people of understanding. And when First Peter says, be alert and sober-minded, that we wouldn't be so disconnected from the worst of evil and how it relates to our own struggles. So I want to be careful that we don't paint a picture of Doeg, for instance, that disconnects from the heart of the story and the greater story and allows ourselves to kind of categorically excuse ourselves from the very same sin tendencies that we struggle with. It's way too easy to consign Doeg to being kind of some separate animal, some separate category type of criminal, kind of like how people use Nazi hyperbole, like it's, it's over there. It's, it's not connected to my struggles at all. And we do that in order to not have to endure the discomfort of personally connecting with the same roots and sin tendencies that Doeg was struggling with. But don't miss one of the roots of what David says about Doeg. Verse 7 of Psalm 52. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. He took refuge in the wrong thing, And he, like you and I, are tempted to find our refuge in the wrong thing. In our leisure, in our hobbies, or simply in the promises of money itself. Doeg, as far as we know in this story, did not receive yet any money. And yet David says he sought refuge and the abundance of riches. Whether you have what you perceive to be much or what you perceive to be little, it's way too easy, church, to find refuge in things that will burn. In fact, some of the greediest people I've ever known don't have much stuff. There's a tendency to think like, to kind of scowl at someone, whether you have a lot or a little, scowl at someone with just a little bit more than you. Or to think things like, if I only had that, I'd be all right. I wouldn't have to keep worrying. When you don't realize that your worry is a product of something inside you, not the things that you could acquire on the outside of you. If I can be whole and complete and lacking in nothing, like the promise comes from being rooted in Christ, and finding my refuge in him, then I can be whole and not needing to get ahead in ways that Doeg thought he needed to. Most of human sin, in my opinion, comes from this anxious desire to make things right in my own mind and manipulate external circumstances to find my refuge in something other than God. Even the, the Nazi stuff that we disassociate with from, it wasn't just that there was some sort of genetic other of evil, and we, we could never struggle with that. Nazi Germany was developed through fear and anxiety and people finding their refuge in other things but God. Do you and I struggle with finding our refuge our definition, our affirmation, and things other than God? Of course we do. 
And let's, let's go deeper into this struggle of Doeg's. His relationships were transactional. They were transactional. He was performing his vows before the Lord. Was he truly serving the heart of God or was he trying to earn God's favor and kind of manipulate God for some sort of spiritual transaction? And he went back to Saul. Was he there to serve Saul in the best interest of Saul or did he opportune on a transaction that could get him ahead? So here's a personal question I have for you. Do you serve God and others for the good of him and them? Or are there strings attached? Is it more just a transaction? Now look, it's okay to love God and the things that he provides for you as a fruit of that. And it's okay to love others and then to love the things that they can do to help you But when those things are primarily transactional and our relationships are like that, it's more like manipulation and witchcraft than it is like a relationship with God, as God. We, like Doeg, are tempted to prowl transactionally and we are in danger of being tempted by the prowling one. So church, beware. Beware of the prowler and prowling. And consider the psalmist, our next character in this. It's truly remarkable here how David, in the darkest of times, incomprehensible depression, he could have, he, he could have spun into deep depression. And, and instead he says, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever And ever, I will thank you forever and ever, for you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. See, this first word, but, in verse 8 is amazing. He considers the destruction. He looks and says, wait, you mean every person was killed? There's no one left? And he sits on that, and it had to, it had to it had produce a, a pit in his stomach. And at some point, by the grace of God, he could say, but, but. It's kind of like the but where it's, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But I am like a green olive tree. So to say, look, you meant for me harm. And maybe, maybe devil, you would want me to react to you in anger and vindication, but I am a green olive tree. David had the power. He had access to a small army to go back and kill Doeg and others. But he says, but I am planted like a green olive tree in the house of God. Olive trees were familiar to people in David's day. The fruit of an olive tree, olives, when pressed the first time, produced extra virgin olive oil. They were used to, to light lamps. And then you'd press it again. And it was used for medicine. And the third press was for soap. And so David is saying here, I am an olive tree. I'm pressed on every side, but not crushed. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. 
When I'm pressed by the enemy, God brings light into a dark place. When I'm pressed by the enemy, God brings healing to the destruction of Doeg's sin and my sin. When I'm pressed, even by the Lord, I am washed by the blood of Christ. I pray that you could see that and apply it. Instead of reacting to evil, you could be at peace and say, I am like a green olive tree planted in the house of God. Typically, trees don't grow in houses, but in the house of God, the eternal house of God, just like the last city that we talked about earlier this month, the city of God, David is planted and the tree of life is bearing fruit in him. I am like this. He says, I will wait. Think of waiting. Is waiting your favorite hobby? Or are you like me where waiting for things produces strength, but it's not something you just enjoy for the sake of waiting? My wife and I have waited for things before. I waited for her. I fell in love with Jesus and I had eyes to see her. And I'm like, all right, God, I'm going to wait for her now. I'm not going to mess around with the same lies like I used to. And God just kept telling me, not today. Wait on me today. Trust in me today. And I know that relatively, when I look back on it, it doesn't seem at this vantage point that long. But not today then was seven years. And it seemed like a long time then. But the more I was planted in God, the more joy I had in the midst of the waiting. And our two years of infertility and adoption failed placement and things like that, right now, it doesn't seem like much, but we remember the darkness and the struggle. That the light that came only when pressed and waiting, I can't do anything but God's steadfast love when in contention with the enemy, let's see who wins. This is what David is saying. We can wait on God. Think about the difference between David's waiting versus Saul's plotting. Saul was paranoid. He was obsessed. He thought that every, every person in his life was against him. This plays out in our life. When we reject God in even small ways and we start to distance ourselves from God, we start to grow certain suspicion of other people around us and other people are all against us. This is what was happening in the mind of Saul. He thought everyone was against him. And Think about this. David says in verse 9, I will wait on your name, God, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Beware of the prowler, consider the psalmist, but finally see the priest. The priest Ahimelech is the only innocent one in this story. Check this out. He provides bread and a sword for David in the tabernacle of God. He's the only innocent one in the story, and yet under false pretense, He is murdered by evil men. Does this sound familiar at all? It reminds us of a greater priest. This story is meant to be a prelude of the perfectly innocent one, the eternal high priest. Jesus says, 
I am the bread of life. He doesn't just give bread. He says, I am the bread of life. You eat of me, you'll never go hungry again. And on the last supper, which we celebrate every week, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he goes on to say of his blood, this is my blood shed for you and for all, a new and everlasting covenant so that sins can be forgiven. Jesus is the greater high priest that was slain on our behalf and he rose again to new life. Remember the other thing that Ahimelech gave David? He gave him a sword. Jesus is the sword as well. Paul says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, we know that John says that that Jesus is the Word of God. In fact, this is really important. You need to check out this verse. John 1, verse 14, the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt, the word used is tabernacled, among us. The priest Ahimelech dies in the house of God for sins of others. But Jesus gives us his word. He gives us his power. And he literally is the presence, is the tabernacle that gives us access to the living God. By dying and raising again from the dead, we have access through not a place, but through a person. Would you pray with me?